We are really considering most of chapters 10 and 11, but we're going to, there's such a quantity of material here that it's really going to take us two weeks to dig through it. So you're going to want to be thinking about this week's and next week's messages as one, um, but two parts for which your stomachs will be thankful when, when uh, lunch uh, gets, gets close, right? So um, we're going to be considering chapters 10 and the first part of 11. And I would encourage you throughout the week, we're going to read the first part of chapter 10 here in a moment, but I would encourage you throughout the week to take some time to read through the entirety of chapter 10, 11, so you can kind of get the context and the flow of of these chapters. And uh, we'll read this together, beginning in in chapter 10. And then we'll ask for God's help and, uh, and look at this text of Scripture. So again, Acts chapter 10, this is the word of the Lord. There was a certain man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion uh, of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man, one who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God uh, coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa, and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among them, who waited on them continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day... As they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Uh, Then he uh, he became very hungry and wanted to eat, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let him down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, uh, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air, and a voice came to him. Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again a second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, Behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius made inquiry for uh, Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek, for what reason have you come? They said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nations of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to this house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and uh, lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away from them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. I'll just simply summarize verses 24 and following. Of course, Peter uh, goes to meet with Cornelius. He preaches the gospel. 
and Cornelius and his household are saved. We'll deal with that more in depth next week, but this that we've just read here is our focus uh, this morning. So let's just pause for a moment and ask for God's help as we consider his word. I pray, Lord, now as we are humbled before your word that we would receive it as it is, the word of the living God, which speaks to us. I pray that you would help us now in this time, that your Holy Spirit would convict, would work in our hearts, and help us to understand well and apply properly. In Christ's name, amen. When I was a kid, there was a commercial on called, about Bear, which was at the time called The Wonder Drug, right? you ever heard of you know the wonder drug or the the wonder exercise program or the wonder diet it'll do something incredible amazing unbelievable it will it will transform you it will change your life well when we think about the gospel we think about something that is truly powerful that it is although not a drug or an exercise program it is something that really is is filled with wonder as I was considering this text of Scripture, my mind went to what Paul wrote under inspiration in Romans 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. This gospel, this good news that the, the New Testament speaks of, um, it, it is the, the good news concerning Jesus Christ who came and died for our sins. And Paul says this good news, I am not ashamed of. I'm not embarrassed by. I am, I, am, I am glad to be able to tell of it. I am not ashamed of the gospel. But he goes on to explain that the reason that he need not be ashamed of the gospel, the reason that he need not be embarrassed by that which is considered foolish by the world, is because the gospel is powerful. And so the reason that we can rejoice in the gospel, the reason that we can be unashamed of the gospel, the reason we can carry the good news of Jesus Christ into the world is because of its power. This passage of scripture, chapters 10 and 11 of Acts, show us some of the unique power of the gospel. And there are many ways which we could rejoice that the gospel is powerful over many things, but we focus in here this morning on the fact that this good news, this gospel... It's for all. It is a gospel that extends, and it overcomes human frailty. The gospel's power overcomes human frailty. In chapters 10 and 11, we learn that this is not just good news for Jews, but it is good news for, for all. It is a gospel for all. And of course, we as Gentiles rejoice in the fact that the, jo- the gospel is not just available to Jews, but that, that we can rejoice that the, the seed of Abraham has blessed all the peoples of the earth, us included. It is not just good news for a certain nation, for God's chosen people, but it is a gospel for all. And so we see in this passage the gospel overcoming some barriers, some human frailty. And this is why Paul could say that it is powerful. So what are these barriers? What are these things that the gospel overcomes? And and why should we not be ashamed? In what ways should we be encouraged to trust the gospel? Well, we see in verses 1 through 8 that we must trust the gospel to overcome ignorance. Trust the gospel to overcome ignorance. So in chapter 10 here, we read it together, we are introduced to a man named Cornelius, a certain man in Caesarea, 
So he's not far from where Peter is staying there. We, we saw in our last uh, chapter that Peter is say, staying there with Simon the Tanner. And we're introduced to a man not far, not far away, named Cornelius. Now, ch- uh, verse 1 um, in chapter 10, verse 1 tells us that he is a centurion. Now, that may be a term that you're familiar with. This is simply a Roman officer who is in command of approximately 100 uh, hundred troops of what is called the Italian Regiment. And then verse 2 goes on to describe him, to tell us a little bit of background about this Cornelius that we've been introduced to. It describes him, first of all, as a, a devout man. Okay, So the idea of devout is, of course, religious. He is pious. He is one who is a, a God-fearing man, and, and in fact, that is exactly what it goes on to say. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household. Okay, so he is is in respect of God, and he is, in fact, a a monotheist, which would have been unusual for those who were Roman. But furthermore, this term of God-fearer in verse 2 was one that the, the, the Jewish people and then the early Christians used in a very specific way. It refers to those who were Gentiles who observed the Sabbath, they, they attended synagogue. Now, they had to sit in the back because they were Gentiles, right? So this, the, the, I'm sure there's application there. Like the good seats are in the front, right? And, but the Gentiles had to sit in the back, right? So he, he would come to synagogue. He would participate in the, in the worship. He was learning about the Jewish religion. He had forsaken his idols, he even probably, um, from this term we derive, that he probably even observed the Jewish diet. But he had not become a proselyte. Now the difference, the, the distinction uh, was that the, those, who were, uh, those who were proselytes had gone through a ceremony to be included in the Jewish religion. Uh, they had been circumcised and now they were, they were part of Judaism. So that's a little different category than than what is described here. So here you have a man who what we might call is a a seeker. He is seeking after the one true God. He's participating in worship. He is listening to the teaching of the Old Testament Scripture. He is is learning about the one true God. And then furthermore, in verse 2, it tells us a little bit more about him. That, that his God-fearing had, had feet to it. It, it. it was put into action. It says he gave alms generously to the people. All right. So here's a Roman officer right, who, who exercises authority over those who are in subjection to him, yet he gives generously. He gives alms. In, in other words, he... He he is a a generous man who gives to the needs of others. And furthermore, it says there that he prayed to God always. And of course, we see this in the narrative here, that he is praying to God when God sends him a message. And in fact, this is exactly the the, um, attention that the angel gives when he explains why he is coming to Cornelius. So notice verse 4. I mean, Cornelius is a little afraid. You don't meet angels every day, and often you don't survive those encounters. So he's nervous, and in verse 4, the angel explains to him, Your prayers 
and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. The word memorial here is interesting. It Actually, this is the only place that occurs in the book of Acts. One commentator has said, The charity was not a dead work, for it ascended to heaven. The gifts were the outgoings of an earnest but unenlightened soul groping after God. So again, Cornelius is what some might refer to as a, a seeker. Now we know, Romans 1, right, that no one seeks after God. That is to say that in our natural state, we are rebels against God. We do not seek after him. So, when we observe someone seeking after God, that means God is at work. That God is doing a work in that person's life. And so we see that with Cornelius here, that he is seeking after God because, because God is doing a work in him. God rewards those who seek after him. Matthew 7, Christ says, Ask, it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. The psalmist says, My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. And this reminds me of Hebrews 11 that says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so if God is doing a work of conviction, if God is drawing a person to himself, and they, they do, not, do not resist or fight against that, but rather they, they pursue God, they, they um, submit to the work that God is doing in their heart, God rewards that. This is what is happening in the life of Cornelius. Now, how do we need to think about this? Well, here at North Hills, we are, without apology, dedicated to being accurate in our theology and to being truthful and precise when we express what Scripture teaches. However, there is a temptation among those who are dedicated to doctrinal accuracy, there's a temptation that we must guard against. And that temptation is to be, to be harsh or to be dismissive of those who are wrong, those who are in error. And so as I think about Cornelius and his seeking after God, even though he was doing it ignorantly, even though he had, he had not really arrived at, at the, the proper theological stance yet, as I think about him... I'm reminded that if someone is seeking, even if, they are, even if they are misguided, even if they are sorely mistaken, you and I should be careful. That person is not someone who should be derided or who should be treated harshly or who should be dismissed. That is a person who needs to be taught. This week, I was getting a haircut. I look less shaggy than I did last week, don't I? So I was sitting there, and uh, this girl who was, was new uh, was cutting my hair, and um, I, I, I must have a, I, I confess something to you. 
sometimes I don't want to have gospel conversations. Are, are you ever that way? Like, you just don't feel like having a gospel conversation right now. You just, 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 just cut my hair and leave me alone, right? But, but she was clearly wanted to talk, and so we got chit-chatting, and, and, you know, the Holy Spirit convicted me about, you know, leave me alone. Uh, all right, so, so we're having this, we're having this conversation, and, um, and I've got it worse than you do, because then at some point in the conversation, people say, well, what do you do? And, like, there's no good way out, right? As soon as you tell them you're a pastor, then, first of all, either they stop talking, or then they really want to talk. So, uh, I can't, kind of can't get out of it. So, oh, yeah, okay, I'm a pastor. Oh, and then she starts talking about spiritual things. And um, she says at some point in the book, have you, at some point, have you ever read the book, The Shack? Now, if you know anything about the book, The Shack, it is unmitigated heresy. All right, it just is. Uh, it's it's New Ageism and, and a bunch of other uh, heresy mixed in there. All right, so so she says this. Now, what is my reaction going to be? That's unmitigated heresy. I, I could say that, but but here's my sense. This is a person who is seeking. Right. This is a person who has a a thirst for for spiritual knowledge. And so I have a choice in this conversation. Do I, do I dismiss that? Do I, do I immediately tell her why she's wrong? No. This is an opportunity for someone to, to take the next spiritual step. And that's, that's a temptation we have to be on guard against. I see, I see in this Cornelius a man who is seeking, who is wanting, who is desiring. He, he may be misguided. His theology may not all be right. But, but God is doing a work in him and drawing to himself. And, of course, Peter has the privilege of, of participating in that. I'm on a couple pastors' forums, and um, some while back, someone asked the question, um, what do you do when someone, as a pastor, someone approaches you and wants to have their child baptized? And there was a few answers about how you set them straight. <laughs> and I said, I see those as opportunities. And the first thing that I want to say when someone says, we'd like to have our child baptized, is I am so grateful that you want to guide your children in the right way. Because when someone says that, although we know biblically that, that baptizing children is not biblical, right? but when someone says that, that probably reflects a thirst to do right by their children, to lead their children in the right. So, so we can immediately dismiss that. We can immediately put them down. Or we can be grateful for that desire and, and foster that and instruct that and, and teach that. That's what I think of when I see Cornelius. How do we treat seekers? How do we treat those who have a genuine desire to learn who, in whom God is doing a work? I do also want you to notice, though, that his sincerity was not sufficient, right? This is not a matter of, well, he's sincere. I mean, come on, that's good enough, right? No, not at all, because one can be sincerely wrong. He was religious, but he was lost. He was pious, but he was ignorant. And so we observe here 
that the good news of Jesus was still necessary for him to be saved. And this is why God sends Peter to preach the gospel. God rewarded his sincerity by giving him further truth, which actually leads us to an important point. Have you ever heard the objection? Well, what about those who have never heard? Right? I mean, if, you, if you've been sharing the gospel for any length of time, at some point in your Christian walk, someone has objected. Well, if Jesus is the only way, what about those who have never heard? What about those on the backside of Australia that have never heard the name of Jesus? What about those in the far reaches of Africa who don't know anything about Jesus? I mean, if Jesus is the only way, what about them? One commentator has said it this way. God does not despise the untutored seeking of a needy soul. It is my firm conviction that if someone is genuinely seeking after God, if they are responding to the revelation that God has already given them in humility and they're seeking truth, that God will send them the next bit of truth that they need. I firmly believe, and I believe this based on Romans 1, this passage is an illustration of that, right? I mean, this is, this is a man who, who had done what he could. He was seeking, he was, he was looking for truth, and what does God do? He even miraculously sends him the message that he needs. If someone is seeking truth, God will not look down on that. He will not despise that. He will not leave them in their ignorance, but will send to them further truth. In fact, this is the beautiful testimony of some of you who know the Lord is your Savior today. That God began to do something to stir in your heart, and you went on a quest, not, not because you naturally seek after God, but because He was doing a work. You began to seek truth, and, and further truth came your way. And, and God did something providentially to bring across your path the person or the opportunity that could, that could lead you to the next step in your spiritual journey. I think of Brother Bob, and like literally almost ran into Brother Bob on the sidewalk, right? God was doing a work in his heart, and, and he was reading and, and learning, and, and God was changing him, and, and then Pastor Dan left his Bible at the Baca Center. Good job, Pastor Dan. That was providential. Right? So I go by the Baca Center to see if, if, if by chance they had it lost and found it, and I almost literally run into Bob, Brother Bob while I'm, I'm texting and walking down the sidewalk. God will do that. He, he will reward those who diligently seek him. And so we ought to praise God for that. Praise God that he does, does a work in our lives to draw us to himself, to give us the truth that we need. And the question is, how do we respond to the truth that we have? So I'd ask you this morning, perhaps, perhaps you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. You're not yet a believer in him. Are you seeking truth? Are you open to it? Are you trusting the gospel to overcome even what you don't know? Your ignorance. We see in this passage, too, that we are to trust the gospel to overcome law. So we now, in verse 9, move to the next day. 
So again, we're still in chapter 10. The next day, Peter goes up on his housetop to pray. It says in the last part of verse 9, about the sixth hour. That would have been noon. All right. The sixth hour of the day, he goes for prayers, for noon prayers. While he's there on his rooftop, by the way, in the in ancient Near East, the roofs were, were flat, and they were used as kind of a, a terrace, kind of an extra bonus room, if you will, where people would go uh, and use it, especially in the cool of the evening, kind of like the, the back porch, if you will, up there on top of the roof. So Peter is out there praying around noontime. He becomes hungry. He wants to eat. Well, to make the food ready, he falls into this trance. Now, in verse 11, we see... Um, this vision that Peter receives. He saw the heaven open, an object like a great sheet bound at four corners, descending to him and letting down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, understand the context, right? Peter who is a diligent observer of the Mosaic Law, right? He is a, a firm, committed Jew. Keeps the dietary laws, and there's this sheet unfolded before him, and in this sheet, all kinds of animals, most of which would have been ceremonially unclean under the Mosaic Law, and therefore forbidden to eat. This would have been contrary to everything that Peter had ingrained in him from the time that he was a child. And so, when, when, when the voice says, when, when God says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat, he has this kind of guttural reaction. Like, are you kidding me? Are, there is no way. Now look at the irony in verse 14. He says... Not so, what, Lord, <laughs> right? I mean, if he's the Lord, if he's the ruler, if he's the boss, how do you tell him no? I mean, there's just like this great irony in that short statement. Lord, no! <laughs> but it's almost instinctive for him. He says, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. So this notion of, of killing something, eating it that is, that is ceremonially unclean, Peter's never done that before. And so God now gives him the explanation. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. All right? So that word common is kind of the, the opposite of ceremonial, ceremonially clean. All right? That, that which is common, that which is profane, that which is ceremonially unclean. You're calling this unclean, and if I'm saying that it is, if I've said that it is cleansed, then it is cleansed. Now, you may ask a question. I mean, it says, what God has cleansed, or in other words, declared clean, is, is the wording here. The verb tense indicates a very specific point in time. So what is that point in time? What was that point in time? I mean, Peter's objecting, and God is retorting, these things I've declared ceremonially pure. But when? You say, I, I must have missed that. Well, actually, so did the apostles. 
The Lord Jesus actually had taught this in his earthly ministry, but Peter had missed it. So keep your Bible, keep your finger there in Acts, and if you'd like to, turn over to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. And look with me at verse 18. Jesus is teaching. He's being called into question by the religious leaders of the day about this whole question of ceremonial purity, diet law. And Jesus corrects them. He corrects their theology. And in fact, he, he adds to where their understanding. Mark chapter 7, he says to them, are you thus without understanding also? Like, don't you get it, we might say in our vernacular. Don't you perceive, um, in chapter 7, verse 18, that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him. So what you eat, what you put into your mouth, what you put into your body, that does not defile you. Verse 19, because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated. Okay? Now, the next phrase is important in, Mark, in, in, in verse 19. Thus purifying all foods. Okay, this is an explanatory note at the end of verse 19. If you're using a King James or old uh, New King James, you ha it reads this way, and I'm going to add the punctuation. Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, comma, and is eliminated, comma, thus purifying all foods, question mark, end quote. Is that what you have? Anybody have a different translation? Purging all meat. Okay. Any other? Anybody using ESV or a uh, New American Standard? All right, I'll read it to you from that. <laughs> the English Standard, uh, English Standard Version says it this way. Since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled, question mark, end quote, parentheses, thus he declared all foods clean, end parentheses. Okay? So that last phrase there in verse 19 is most likely an explanatory note regarding what Jesus has said. All right, now forgive me being technical here for just a minute, all right? But the phrase is in what's called the nominative case. The, thus purifying all foods, or thus he declared all foods clean, is in the nominative case, which is just a big fancy grammatical way of saying that it is going back to he at the beginning of verse 18. Do you see that? All right, so cleansing all foods, purifying all foods, declaring all foods clean, whichever way you want to translate it, goes back to the he at the beginning of verse 18. So here's the connection. Here's the idea. He said this, cleansing all foods in the process. So Jesus' declaration is that food is cleansed. And in fact, it says all food is clean. Now, what do you do with that? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 5 that he did not come to destroy the law. Right? He did not come to, to render it useless. He did not come to demean it. 
it actually served an important role. Paul writes plenty about that in the book of Romans, that the law served a valuable function. Jesus did not come to render the law useless. He came instead, what? To, remember this? Fulfill the law. Are you with me? You need to turn the air down? All right. He came to fulfill the law. And so Jesus replaced the law with a new way of living. What is called by the New Testament writers, the royal law. Or the law of Christ. Or grace. You see, our cleansing, our forgiveness come from the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our standing before God come not with ceremonial law keeping, but by being in Christ, the perfect law keeper. In fact, this is, if you've ever studied the book of Hebrews, this is the whole point of the book of Hebrews, right? Jesus is better than the old way. I mean, there was purpose, there was value to the law, but Jesus surpasses all of that. And the writer of the book of Hebrews argues, why would you go back? Jesus is better It's not that the old model was bad, right? I mean, it it got you from point A to point B. It did what it was supposed to, but Jesus is so much better. Now, Peter's learning this lesson, and he's learning it with a little bit of resistance, but he's learning an important lesson about what God is doing in redemptive history. I mean, these are seismic shifts that are happening in chapters 10 and 11. I mean, really, you could say that about the whole book of Acts. But this is a a continental divide of what God is doing in, in, in history. Many of the law codes, including the dietary restrictions, actually didn't have to do with objective filth. Rather, they had to do with ceremonial uncleanness, right? This is Jesus' argument in Mark 7. Whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him. We're not talking here about objective filth. We're talking about ceremonial rightness, ceremonial cleansing. We know that God is timeless, but we also know that God works differently in different ages. And so we see a major change from the old covenant, Mosaic law, to the the church age, the age of grace, the royal law. Christ abrogated the law. The gospel of grace repeals the Old Testament law. Peter learns it here, and then it's actually repeated throughout the New Testament. I mean, two times in Romans 6, Paul says what? You are not under law, but under Grace. We see it in Colossians 2. So let no one judge you in food or drink 
or in regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, all of these observations of the, of the Old Testament Mosaic law, don't let anyone judge you in respect to those. Why? Because those were simply a shadow of things to come. These were intended to point forward to, to the ultimate fulfillment, which is what? The substance is Christ. Christ surpasses. He is so much better than law. We see it in Romans 14. Let him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Right There were these, these factions within the early church, some of whom were still conscience-bound to the Old Testament law, and others who recognized their new liberty in Christ. And we're exercising that new liberty. And Paul appeals to them. Get along with each other. Be gracious with one another. Be kind one another. Don't look down on each other. Who are you, verse 4, to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. For God is able to make him stand. One person esteems every day uh, above, excuse me, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observe it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. I mean, if you want to read an entire commentary on this very question, read Galatians. I mean, that's what the whole book is about. And in fact, Galatians develops the theology as kind of the theological compendium to what is here starting in Acts 10 and goes for about the next five chapters or so. If you want to read the kind of the theological side of it, that's the book of Galatians. If you want to see the kind of historical development of theology, that's this, this midpoint of the book of Acts. Paul develops this theology, which really is being developed here in, in these chapters. And so as we think about this, we're reminded that there are many forms of legalism. Some are subtle, some are overt. But the truth is clear on this point. In fact, 1 Timothy actually warns against those who would deny the gospel by teaching legalism. That is to say, binding people to the law as a means of access to God. And he actually puts that in the category of denial of the gospel. This is the essence of of most religion. I mean, you keep a set of rules and you earn favor with God. That's what religion teaches. Here's your list of rules. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, and God will be pleased with you and he'll let you in at the end. Just make sure this list of the do's, the good stuff, is longer than the, the list of the bad stuff, and you're good. That's man-made religion. 
Man-made religion is primarily about what we must do for God. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is about what he has done, what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. So the question is this morning, what are you trusting in? I keep a list of rules. I do all the good stuff. I don't do the bad stuff. Well, for the most part, at least I'm better than my neighbor. So I must be okay with God. And that, my friends, is false religion. How does Paul argue against this in Romans 3? Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified. What's the word justified mean? He is made right before God. He's declared not guilty, right? We talked about ceremonial cleansing, right? How is someone cleansed, made ceremonially right before God? Paul makes this whole argument in the first part of Romans, and he says, here's the conclusion. Here's the bottom line, verse 28. We conclude that a man is made right with God by what? You see it on the screen. By what? By faith. Oh, in case you missed that, that doesn't mean law-keeping. Right? That's what the next phrase says. Apart from the deeds of the law. This is the essence of the gospel. Not that we earn favor with God by keeping a list of rules. That's legalism. But that we come to God in faith and repentance, depending completely on the finished work of Jesus Christ, which is our only hope, of salvation. And so I would ask you this morning, what are you trusting in? Has there ever been a time when you've realized that your goodness, your works, your religions, even your doing good for your fellow man is not sufficient to earn standing before God? Have you ever repented of your sins, turned from yourself, and depended completely on Jesus Christ? If you've never done that, we invite you to come and depend on Jesus Christ alone, who is our only hope of salvation. Stop trusting in legalism. Stop trusting in the works that you do. Trust in Christ alone. Now, there have been, and probably most in this room, would testify to the fact that there's been a point in time in your life when you have done this, where you have recognized your inadequacy, you've depended on Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sin and asked for salvation. So as Christians, how do we apply this? Well, even as believers, we must guard diligently against the temptation to legalism. One blogger wrote this. I want to encourage those who are Christians that eating blank diet, I'm not going to tell you which diet, just a diet, just fill in whatever your favorite one is, right? I want to encourage those of you that are Christians eating a blank diet can, can complement a Christian lifestyle because such and such a diet changed my life. And Christ has changed my life too. Dietary legalism is still alive and well. And in fact, it's gone over the decades and over the centuries, Christianity has gone, after, gone through wave after wave after wave of this. Now, let's be clear. Certainly, if you choose to keep a certain diet out of preference or perhaps for a particular health reason, absolutely, be my guest. Keep whatever diet you feel you need to keep. But here's the thing. Don't ever look at it as a means of godliness. 
and certainly do not attempt to bind it on the consciences of your fellow believers. Put simply, do not call unclean what God has cleansed. But it's not just about diet, is it? I mean, we're all tempted towards legalism in some way or another. And although we do and and should deny that we're saved by rule-keeping, how often are we tempted to look at rule-keeping to, you know, kind of stay in God's good graces? Well, grace, by its very definition, is not something we earn or deserve. So, you may choose to educate your children a certain way, or choose a certain way of dressing, or not participate in certain activities, or participate in other activities, or have your devotions in the morning, or have your devotions in the evening, or on and on and on the list could go of the choices that we make, even sometimes good choices that are, that are based in biblical principles, but never confuse them with the ultimate. We are only anything that we are because of the grace of Christ. Our standing is in him alone. Right? This is exactly what we sang just before the message. Complete in him, no work of mine can take, dear Lord, the place of mine. And as we think about this, I think it is good for our thinking to end with that reality that we are complete in him. That he is enough. That he has provided salvation apart from the deeds of the law. All I have is Christ. And Christ is enough. The gospel's power overcomes human frailty. It overcomes our ignorance, and it overcomes law. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for your word which teaches us, and I pray that even as we meditate on what has taken place in these chapters, in these verses, that we would think well about it. I pray, Lord, that our dedication would not be to a list of rules, that it would be to Christ alone. We'd strive to live a life that you call us to because of Christ's finished work. I invite you in these moments to just remain bowed before the Lord in the quietness to confess sin and to ask for the Lord's work in your heart through what we've learned this morning.